Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, December 2nd, we are studying 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3-9. to St. Paul gives thanks for the Corinthian Christians, whom God has blessed with all his gifts as they wait for the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Philip Hoppe. Pastor Hoppe serves at Peace Lutheran Church in Finlayson, Minnesota, and St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Bruno, Minnesota. Pastor Hoppe, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Glad to be back with you today. So we get started this morning, Pastor Hoppe. Let's talk, uh, broadly speaking, about the season of Advent and how this text fits in. We're doing Advent, Advent with the Apostles during December, looking at the appointed epistle readings for the various lectionaries. And this is, this text from 1 Corinthians 1, is the epistle reading for the first Sunday in Advent for Series B, so the part of the three-year lectionary that we actually just came out of last year. Just as a terms of a broad introduction, how does a text like this fit into a season like Advent? Well, sure. I think, you know, with, with Advent, the first thing that always comes to mind for me is sort of, you know, he came, he comes, he is coming, right? Those kind of three comings of our Lord, one, his incarnation, which of course we celebrate again. And then we look at the ways that he comes to us currently uh, through his word and his sacraments. Uh, and then finally that he is coming again. And this, I would say this text kind of really centers in on the last two, right? Uh, uh, the Corinthians are going to be uh, told to think about and consider and give thanks for all the gifts they've been given by God. Uh, and so I think that would fit into the, you know, the kingdom coming in the present to them. But they're to do all of that uh, as they await the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? As they await that great day uh, when he will return. And so, uh, you know, I think as we look at that, it fits in nicely with this Advent theme. Uh, the other text for the day, I just went and looked at that, our uh, Isaiah uh, chapter 61, I believe it is, where it's, you know, oh, that you would come and rend the heavens. Uh, hopefully that's a, a familiar passage to some. Uh, and, you know, <clears throat> that is when we look forward to that day of him rending the heavens. Of course, that is the day of the revealing of, of our Lord. The gospel reading for the day is actually uh, either the Palm Sunday account or Mark 13, which deals with the end time. So all of this stuff kind of pushes us uh, towards thinking about the Lord's return on the last day, although um, kind of in an underhanded way, I'd say. It's, you know, it's not a text about the last day, but it's all uh, in, in that context. That's kind of where Paul is going to uh, push us to think about everything that we're talking about in the text. That's one thing I really appreciate about the season of Advent is that you you get a text like First Corinthians one, which is as we'll talk about when we dig into it. You know, this is the the section of Thanksgiving. It's a the type of section that Paul's going to have in almost all of his epistles anyway. And, and so sometimes you know we we read it and we don't have that pair of glasses on thinking about it in light of the Lord's coming. And so the 
having it in the season of Advent kind of opens our eyes to see how, as you said, the Lord's current coming and his coming in the future are, are definitely in this text and form the background for this text. And even, I mean, I think we can say, even though it's not explicit in what we get today in First Corinthians, certainly the background of what Paul's talking about here is Jesus' first coming. The fact that he did come to bring salvation is is the backbone as well. And so I, I love that about the season of Advent, that it it opens our eyes to see a text like this and other epistle readings as well, to see how that second coming of our Lord really is very influential for the epistles and should be for our lives as Christians as well. No, I, I think you're exactly right. And I, I think it is one of those times where you look back and all of a sudden you go, oh, right. I didn't really think of how much it talks about the last day, like in a particular text or just in the scriptures in general, right? And maybe part of it again is where we live and we can grow uh, you know, I mean, of course, the Lord warns us against us, but we can grow kind of, you know, wearisome of the waiting. And so, uh, you know, when we if we don't have that urgency on our mind, which Advent should help restore. Right. But when we don't, we can kind of read over these statements about the Lord's revealing, uh, you know, of himself again on the last day or the coming day. And we just kind of like go right past them, because unfortunately, maybe that's not uh, what's right on our mind, um, even though it should be. That's right. Yeah. And, and Paul puts it right out the beginning of his letter. Hey, remember, Christ is coming. And, and that's a big part of what he's writing here in the letter of 1 Corinthians. So with, with that in mind, obviously, we're not doing a full study of 1 Corinthians here on Sherper Iron for the time being. But given that we're jumping into the beginning of the letter, it is helpful to have a, kind of a general sense of what happens in the letter, some general context. So in terms of this letter of Paul, what's helpful for us to know with the background and, and what he writes as a whole as we prepare to look at these few verses? Right. So I'd say, you know, First uh, Corinthians is kind of an interesting book and, and one even, you know, people will look at as far as uh, the uh, kind of, you know, at pastors looking at how do you approach when there is sin that needs to be addressed? Um, or even lay people certainly could, you know, look at it in the same uh, way. So one of the things we see and we'll look at today is that, you know, he starts off talking about the wonderful ways these people have been blessed and that, you know, giving thanks for that. Uh, and then, though, he also takes some of these very things that he is thankful for and addresses how they're being misused. And so, um, you know, they, they're given all these gifts and all these uh, wonderful, and they're given a unity in Christ. Well, then the rest of the book is going to kind of come back and say, okay, how are you doing with these gifts? Well, not very well, right? You're, uh, you're you know, misusing the gifts. And then, you know, well, are you living in the unity that Christ gives you? Well, no, you're not, right? You're separating yourself up between Paul and Apollos. And um, so I'd say for the overall book, that's kind of the theme that sort of jumps out to me is both how God gives so many gifts, but then how uh, the Corinthians and of course us too were prone to misuse the very gifts that God gives us. Um, the other thing I guess I'd just throw in at this point is just, you know, Corinth again, remember, like you said, we don't have, you know, time to go into great detail, but Corinth was a very uh, rich city. It was a very um, uh, promiscuous, we might say, city. I, I think in our day and age, it might be thought of as a, a Las Vegas or an Amsterdam or, you know, uh, those kind of things. And so um, that's in the background. And the other thing is that it seemed in Corinth, 
people loved knowledge uh, and they loved speeches. They loved, um, you know, people that could speak eloquently. Uh, and so all of that stuff kind of gets wrapped up here. And Paul's going to separate the people of God from Corinth, right? He, he says, right, in, in even the verses before what we do, you know, that he's writing to the people of God in Corinth. And and I didn't really think about that till this time, but it's almost like a, a subset of the Corinthians, right? Uh, which, which, of course, it is, but even more so than just a demographical subset, but truly a set-apart-by-God subset. And so he addresses them, and he he sets them apart, right? And he says, you know, you guys are all about knowledge, uh, but the knowledge you should be about is Jesus, right? And Corinth was about pleasure. And he says, no, you should be holy, set apart. Uh, Cor- Corinth had a huge temple to Aphrodite. And and he says, no, right, our loyalty is to Jesus. There's just kind of all these things, right? Even the division that we think even was there in Corinth among the various teachers. He says, don't model that in the church, right? Instead, find unity in Christ. Yeah, when I think about the letter to the Corinthians, and I suppose particularly the first, although the second falls into it similarly, I think of the Corinthians as the problem church of the New Testament. I mean, they, it's one of those, and I, I think you you alluded to this at the, the beginning, that you know, it's, it's one of those we, we think about, boy, they had a lot of problems there in Corinth. And you can just flip through the, the chapters and see some of the things that he deals with, the division that's there and the sexual immorality and and lawsuits, questions about marriage, that the matter of the Lord's Supper and the abuse of the Lord's Supper that was happening there, eating meat sacrificed to idols, all these very particular questions sometimes get dealt with in this letter. And so it does come off as, I think, the, the problem church of the New Testament, it seems. And, and certainly, as you said, just the town of Corinth, that was a very well-known and notorious city, as you mentioned. And, and yet, I do, I love that, and, and this does come before what we have for today, but in that introduction, that still Paul speaks to these people as saints, as Christians. And I, I, I in, in catechesis, in adult catechesis, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2 is one of the verses that I bring up when we talk about the Holy Christian Church, that, you know, Paul writes to these people as saints. And, well, when you read through the letter, they don't sound like saints. <laughs> But they are. They are saints because of God's grace. And I, it's just a beautiful example of how God's grace does come to, of all the people, people in Corinth, and call them out of that unholiness and sin and into the marvelous light of, of Jesus Christ. And it really is a, the contrast that you're drawing for us is, is quite marvelous. And I, I think very helpful as we prepare for this text today. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, too, and we'll get into this um, a little bit more, but it, it, it's just kind of amazing again, yeah, how what Paul says about the Corinthians that is good is good. It is genuine. I don't think, you know, there's some commentators I read that kind of, you know, Paul's just sort of buttering people up before he's really going to go after them. But I think, no, he's genuinely saying, right, look at how many things you have and what a blessing that is to the church. Um, And I think we can learn something from that. You know, when we get into the saint sinner thing, uh, you know, that we want to talk about both, right? That the ways in which God uh, marvelously does unique things through us as his set apart people, uh, you know, uh, set forth and empowered by his spirit, right? Uh, And then in the same minute, that doesn't mean by any means that we're all perfect and there's no rebuke. And I think we just, we tend to go 
to one side or the other. We all, you know, either want to talk just about the good that God is working in us, or maybe more often than not, we want to just say, well, there's all this sin here. And I think Paul sets us a good model here of saying, if we're talking about Christian people, the reality of sinner and the reality of saint are both real, and they both have stuff we can say about them. Well, I think that that's helpful. Just And again, we're not reading the whole letter of 1 Corinthians right now, but it is helpful for the letter as a whole to have a, a section like this that while we are going to point out some specific things that lay the foundation for other specific things that will come up later in the letter, this is a it's a pretty general introduction. Again, making 1 Corinthians, part of the challenge of 1 Corinthians sometimes, I think, is that it is so specific. For example, the the meat sacrificed to idols. Well, that's not a problem in Smithville, Texas. <laughs> so, I mean, at least not in the way that it was for Paul. And so sometimes I, I think with 1 Corinthians particularly, it can be difficult for us to read a section and say, well, boy, I don't know what to do with that today. But seeing what he's got here in the Thanksgiving and the more Again, there are specifics, but the more general way he speaks to them as sinners and saints at the same same time, in this reality of being called by Jesus, I think it I think it helps us as Christians today to get a handle on this letter and to to make use of it still. Yeah, I I totally agree. I think it again sometimes we have to swap the specifics, right? But the the general reality is true. Let's go ahead then and jump right into the text. Again, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That is the text for today. That's 1 Corinthians 1, verses 3 through 9. It is the epistle reading appointed for the first Sunday in Advent in Series B of the three-year lectionary. So, Pastor Hoppe, before we dig into the specifics of the verses, give us just your overall impression of this text. What What's Paul's point here? Well, yeah, I mean, I think ultimately he is uh, kind of telling them again and reminding them of what has been given to them. And and given is the key word here, right? That uh, while I think even some of these gifts that they had been given were misused, and one of the ways they were misused was sort of taking a pride in them, right? That, uh, oh boy, you know, we've got all this stuff uh, and we are quite uh, astounding, right? Kind of look, look at me, look at me and what I can do. And so Paul, right off the bat, wants to make very clear to them that uh, everything they have is by grace. Uh, and, you know, there's even this, he uses this word here uh, in the Greek, which basically just means a, a grace gift. I mean, if you kind of woodenly translate it into English. And, and uh, you know, it seems the Corinthians like to talk about spiritual gifts. And of course, we could say there, that's a proper term too. These are gifts of the Holy Spirit. But it seems that Paul uses this grace gifts to just keep reminding them that they should not boast in these things other than, right, to boast in their Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, one of the other just basic things as, you know, listening to that again as you read it and just thinking through it here in preparation is, 
Jesus's name is all over this text, right? In fact, uh, one commentator uh, I read, you know, made the suggestion that in in a short, you know, span of, you know, uh, three to nine here, that Jesus's name is mentioned more consistently in those verses than it is any other, you know, six or seven verses in the whole of Scripture, where his name is just all over this. And of course, uh, what a blessed thought, right? That everything ultimately comes back to Jesus. If you want unity, you need Jesus. If you want the proper use of these gifts, or if you even want the gifts, you need Jesus. So uh, I think overall, we want to kind of keep seeing how Paul is going to draw them to see that everything they have comes from Jesus. Yeah, I mean, it really does stand out, particularly when you when you read it out loud. And if, if you just let your eyes scan up to those first two verses of the epistle, you'll notice that the name Jesus shows up again and again up there also. What, what really stood out to me, again, and I think it's because I was reading it out loud, is that it, it's off, and I, I'm looking at it again, and I don't think the name Jesus never appears just all by itself, but it's always Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus, and particularly our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, you've got that full exalt, not only his name, but the fullness of his exalted title. And I think particularly Lord, the, the Lordship of Jesus is a big deal here. And it, and again, I'm just thinking forward to some of those very key passages in the letter. That's going to be a really important point for this letter as a whole. Again, you see how Paul's setting that up, but just the I don't know, talk a little bit more about that, not only the name Jesus, but how his his title Christ comes into play and also his his title as Lord. Yeah, no, I think you're you're definitely right that this is kind of one of the concentrations of kind of, you know, especially in our English translation, Lord Jesus Christ, which again, we we say quite a bit, it seems, in our, our prayers and things like that. But, uh, you know, it is a very much a concentration here. And again, Lord, both referring to him sort of being, right, master uh, of us, but also Lord being that translation of God's own name from the Old Testament, right? So, I mean, the reason he is master over us is not just you know, that he has been chosen to be that, but that he actually is by nature God, right? So that's that's the Lord. Of course, Jesus, we can remember, right, is the, the name given uh, to him, which simply means, you know, God saves or, or Yahweh, right? The Old Testament name is our salvation, something like that. Um, and then Christ speaks of his unique vocation, his unique role as the one set apart to be that savior. And so, yeah, when you get the three together here, I mean, you could, you could probably do at least an hour, right? On just those three, uh, names there and what all is packed in there, because it it definitely is an all-inclusive list and just packed with meaning about basically the God, uh, who, who saves us and the God who, you know, was chosen, uh, to come into the flesh, right? For us. Yeah, I mean, this is just a reminder. And again, just the fact that I it occurred to me because I was reading it out loud to engage the scriptures in a variety of ways, I think is so helpful that we would read it, you know, silently to ourselves, read it out loud, hear it in church and, and in our families. I mean, so many ways to engage the scriptures because it's easy to skip over or to forget the significance of what's being said. And when you hear our Lord Jesus Christ over and over it's something kind of kicks in like, Oh, I should pay attention to that. He's saying that a lot. And to to not take for granted, you know, as you you said, these are words that we use regularly as Christians. 
and it's easy for us to forget their significance. So to to slow down and consider, you know, the Lord and Jesus and Christ, this is so helpful. And speaking of words that we hear all the time, verse three to dig into the text of First Corinthians chapter one, verse three. Those are almost verbatim. Those are the words that I start every single sermon with, Pastor Hoppy. And I know it's easy for me just to rattle them off. It's probably easy for the folks in the pews just to say, well, he's he's not starting yet, so I'm just going to wait to listen for a moment. (laughs) (laughs) But Paul uses them regularly. He uses them here. So today's a perfect opportunity for us to consider those words. Yeah. And I think, you know, uh, before we get to kind of actually what's there in the meaning, I think there is something just to be learned here about words that are repeated, words that are used regularly, um, and that sometimes I think we Uh, devalue those words that we do hear all the time, right? Uh, Like you said, sometimes we don't even think about them or we see them just as sort of, yeah, markers of the beginning of the sermon or or whatever. Um, But, you know, there's a lot of this in our liturgy, you know, again, starting, you know, as we start every time in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we can just do that and not think baptism, right? Not think uh, all these things we're supposed to. And so I think there's an encouragement here to slow down with everything that we repeat often and and say, okay, why? Why do we do that? Why do we say that thing over and over again? Because I would suggest, right, our, our forefathers in the faith, those things they gave us to repeat over and over again, they did not give them because they thought they were unimportant, right? <laughs> they They thought these were gravely important things that we should hear over and over again. And so here, you know, grace and peace, uh, from God, right, our Father, um, and the Lord Jesus Christ here again, that full three uh, name uh, for Jesus. And, and you know, here again, that like you said, we just hear this, and, you know, I, I likened it to, you know, it can, again, be like Dear Bob in a letter, you know, where it's just, yeah, this is how you start off, like you said, a sermon, or Paul starts off, a, a you know, his letters, and you're just like, okay, now let's get into the real meat of it. No, let's, let's pause, right? And, just if we just take this away, right, that it is God's grace that gives us peace, uh, gives us peace with God, gives us peace uh, in our conscience. Uh, when we think of those things, I mean, there's enough to ponder there for a long time. Uh, and then especially as we remember that that grace, of course, comes to us from the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, I mean, words to to pay attention to and to take to heart in terms of what what this is. You know, I mean, it, in the ESV, the title over verses one to three is greeting, which, okay, you know, he's certainly greeting the Christians there in Corinth. But but these words, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. You know, just saying that in English, it doesn't even seem to be a a complete sentence. It, what what kind of what kind of words are these? Is this a is this a prayer? Is this a well wish? How would you characterize this? Well, I would say it's it's you know a blessing uh, or a benediction, right? We use that word, right? But uh, it, it's a blessing. It's an imparting of these things, and that's the other thing we can you know we talk in certain contexts. I hope you know, like when when the words of absolution are spoken, that people understand, right? Something is occurring in this moment, or when the words of institution are spoken, right? I I, I think we get that at least if we'll slow down again and think about it. But even in like short words like this, right? We are having something imparted, grace and peace, which are two things no doubt we always need and two things 
we long for, right? To uh, and particularly as we get into you know the Corinthians, they of course, as we'll see with all their different troubles, they need the grace of God to cleanse them of their sins and to free them from the guilt of sins. And the other thing that comes up in this book a lot is their divisions. Uh, and again, uh, what you know heals divisions but peace, right? And so, uh, yeah, I think he's speaking here and imparting to them these things rather than just speaking about them. He's delivering them. Well, and I, just to to piggyback on that, that this is a a blessing and something is actually occurring at this moment. It's not just a. I mean, I, I suppose something is happening when information is given. There's a giving of information, but it's more than that. It's a if I, the the theological word that I would use is it's a performative word that the word actually accomplishes something at that moment and bestows the grace and bestows the peace upon you. And, and so, and I, I know it's not here in the text of 1 Corinthians because Paul's writing this as a letter and there's not a, an immediate response, but when your pastor says this before his sermon or something similar, however you may phrase it, and he says amen at the end of it, it's appropriate for the congregation to respond the same way as, as a recognition, you know, amen, and I know, again, it's not in the text, but that's another one of those words that sometimes we just use as a signal word, okay, now we're done praying, or now, right. now we're at the end. But that too is an important word, and and I think you know if if we as Christians get in the habit of using that word as a response audibly, go ahead and say it with your pastor, or maybe he doesn't even say it so that you can say it. Right. Go ahead and say it as a reminder that something is happening at that moment. No, I I think you're absolutely right, and and again, um, it's those little things like you know audibly saying "Amen" that tend to trigger our brain that we are doing something, right? That we're not just sort of droning through, but I have a role. And in this case, and in a lot of cases in the, in this, you know, service, uh, our role is to receive, but that still, you know, we say, yeah, let it, yes, yes, let it be so, right? Uh, to that, that I, I came into God's house. And again, just like the Corinthians, if there's two things I could sure use when I come into the Lord's house, it's grace and peace. And here they are delivered to you. That's right. And so we respond with a hearty amen. God has given what he promised. We will pick up more of these gifts from God on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 with Pastor Philip Hoppe. We will be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, December 2nd. We are studying 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 9 with Pastor Philip Hoppe. 
He is pastor at Peace Lutheran Church in Finlayson, Minnesota, and St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Bruno, Minnesota. Pastor Hoppy, prior to the break, we're looking at verse 3, digging into those familiar words so that we get their full weight and receive the gift of grace and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul continues, again with familiar language if we know his epistles, they often start with this format where he gives this blessing and then he gives a thanksgiving to God, which is a familiar format for Paul and a familiar format for letters in general in his time. Something we're familiar with, time now to to dig into it a little bit. So what's he giving thanks for here? Well, yeah, I mean, ultimately what he's giving thanks for is the these, like I said, grace gifts, I'm going to use that phrase, right, that have been given to the Corinthians. And yet, you know, he does not separate this just because it's grace. He does not sort of ignore the people that have received them, if that makes sense. He, he you know, is giving thanks for the Corinthians because they have been gifted with these gifts. And so he's actually, I think, you know, giving thanks uh, for the people, but ultimately for the grace of God in them. Uh, and he, you know, he uh, specifically here, he talks about them being rich, right? He talks about that they have all speech, all knowledge, uh, not lacking in any gifts. So kind of these, you know, phrases here all speak about a fullness of everything that is needed. And so, uh, again, when we look at the saints of God in any context, the good that we see in them, of course, we should know where to direct that thanks, that that thanks is indeed coming solely uh, out of our mouths and towards God, for he is the one that gives us those gifts. Uh, just to see Paul give thanks for this congregation, I think, is a, a, a huge thing. And we, we talked a little bit about this on the first side of the break, that you know the Corinthians are sometimes thought of as the problem child of the New Testament, the problem church of the New Testament, and yet Paul starts by giving thanks to them. And you, you brought out, you know, there are some that might consider Paul just sort of buttering them up here, but this this is genuine. He actually is giving thanks to God for these Christians. And and as you said, it's because of what God has done for these Christians. If it was just about the Corinthians, as you'll see if you read the rest of the letter, you know, there's a lot of problems. But God's word has been preached there, and God's word has been effective there. And so Paul has ample reason to give thanks. And I, I do think that this is a, I, I know for myself as a pastor particularly, this is a helpful reminder to start off by giving thanks for Christians. You know, it's, it's very easy to, to look at others, and this is true not just for pastors, but for all Christians. It's very easy to look at our brothers and sisters in Christ and see all their problems and, and want to fix them and think that we've got all the solutions right away. Paul starts by giving thanks for these Christians. He's going to come to, to the matters of correction, no doubt, but he starts by giving thanks. And I, I do think that that's a very helpful correction for for we who are often very quick to to judge, quick to point out the speck in our brother's eye without seeing the plank in our own. Yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. And it's something I've kind of been thinking about again ever since, you know, reading this text and studying it for this Bible study is, you know, kind of, yeah, what does this mean then for my interaction with my people, right? And like you said, unfortunately, and maybe part of it is just our human nature, that once we kind of identify something that we need to talk to someone about, it becomes 
very easy to just get focused on that one thing and again lose the fact that again these are people that God has set apart you know most cases when we're talking to someone this is someone that's baptized right that's uh, hopefully been in the Lord's house has been receiving his supper so they are being given gracious gifts by the Father as well. And so, yeah, to to start there, and in fact, even to place then the rebuke and correction in light of that. One of the things um, I was thinking about uh, just today was uh, when we get to Good Friday here, we in our congregations use this chief service. I don't know if you use that, but there's, there's a section called the reproaches, right? And it's a it's a, a harsh <laughs> section of that service. But what it says, you know, is he starts off and he just, you know, using the language of Isaiah and others of, you know, Israel is the vineyard. And he just says, what, what didn't I do for my vineyard? You know, I set up everything perfect for it. And yet I come and I look for, you know, good grapes and all I find is wild grapes. And I think this even, again, heightens now when he's going to talk to the Corinthians their problems are not due to the fact that God did not give them the things they needed to not be involved in that kind of sin. Much to the contrary, he gave them every advantage, every grace, every gift, and yet they still went on with their sinful life. And I think for us too, I think sometimes, you know, when we almost take comfort in the fact that uh, the flesh still bothers us, that we are, you know, still sin, we can almost be like, well, yeah, I, I did bad, but that's because I'm a sinner. And, you know, so it's kind of expected. But I don't think the Apostle Paul uh, lets the Corinthians off that way. He says, no, right? What have I not done for you, Corinthians? I gave you all knowledge, all speech, not lacking in every gift. And yet you're still divided. You're still misusing the Lord's Supper. You're still, you know, having worship that's out of order and, and you know, things happening there that are not God-pleasing. And so I, I think it is another thing, too, that for us, when we think through our own sins, that sometimes I think we need that reminder to help recognize the gravity of our sins is that Christ has freed us, right? He has made us new. And therefore, the fact that we still live in the old is actually just, it's worse, right? Than if we had not received any grace at all, uh, then it could be expected. But God's done everything for us to free us from that. I think it's a really good point that hearing, again, and it's genuine from Paul, because he really is giving thanks to God for what he has given these Corinthian Christians. But the the effect on the Corinthians then is that they do hear it, and they they hopefully are brought to that same thanksgiving, and and then also as as you're saying, you know they they realize oh how we've how we've wasted these gifts and and being brought to repentance, and then and I, I think this is important too being brought back to the gift. Like if Paul doesn't start with a thanksgiving like this. That and he just launches right into everything that's going wrong and everything they need to fix. Then, then perhaps the temptation is, well, okay, maybe they deal with it, maybe they fix the problems, but then on on what basis? And and it can become a matter of, well, look, we fixed the problem, we did it ourselves, and they're not, they don't have that foundation. And no, this was all a gift to start with, and you need to be brought back to the gift. And and it can become, I think, you know, if, if you don't have a Thanksgiving like this then it just becomes a matter of legalism. And like, well, just fix your problems, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you're good. Paul, Paul's setting a foundation here 
that's going to bring them into genuine repentance and then into genuine faith and, and comes full circle back to that gift of God. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, in verse eight uh, in particular here, right, this reminder that, right, Jesus Christ is the one who will sustain them to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, I think is exactly kind of like you're saying, this is the reminder to them that when they, you know, get halfway through this letter uh, and have so many things, you know, brought out before them that, well, what are we going to do, right? How are we, I mean, maybe we've lost everything, right? We were given so much and maybe now all is hopeless and God will just cast us away. And no, 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 right? God wants to sustain you to the end. He wants to forgive you and continue to nurture in you the life he gave you in baptism. And all of that, right, will mean that on the last day, despite the many charges that are made in this letter, on the last day, you're going to stand guiltless before the Lord Jesus because of his grace and his mercy. You've mentioned already that the gifts of God are, are overflowing. I mean, we're talking about enriching in every way, but Paul does specify here in all speech and all knowledge, and you've you've talked a little bit about these already as, as being important there in Corinth and for these Christians particularly. Well, what's entailed in, in being enriched in all speech and in all knowledge? Right. So like I said, the, you know, the Corinthians uh, had a number of different philosophies, we believe, that were kind of floating around. But one was Stoicism. And, and some of you may hear that and go, you know, what is that? But one thing I've noticed, I actually I went to a uh, basketball meeting uh, with my daughter at the end of last year. And the coach was actually talking about stoicism. And this was, you know, high school. And I was like, what? What are, you know, again, if I talked about that at church, people would say, don't use big words, right? But uh, the, the stoics, right, are, are very big into sort of rational thought apart from emotion. So you can kind of understand, right, that the basketball coach that's what they want when there's, you know, 30 seconds left on the clock and there's, you know, they're down by two points and they got to hit the three pointer. They want them to go in and just think, what do we need to do? What do we need to accomplish? And don't let your emotions, right, make you not forget, you know, to forget to throw it in in the first five seconds uh, and lose the ball. Um but so it's always interesting to me where some of these philosophies come up. But in Corinth, right, it seemed that people would gather to various teachers who were thought to be really, you know, good both at thinking and then at speaking. And so what Paul does here is he says, I mean, he's not saying, well, you're good like the Stoics. You should go out and, you know, set up your own place to speech and gather people to yourself for your own fame. But he is saying, I mean, they've got nothing on us Christians, right? And they've got nothing particularly on you Corinthians because the speech and knowledge that you have is far better, right? The speech is the proclamation of Jesus and the knowledge is of salvation that comes through Jesus. And so he kind of, you know, takes something that's valued in their day and say, you got something far better, right? I mean, you know, I don't know how we can, I often think we should do this in our day and age too, you know, as people, uh, you know, think about getting to 
um, you know, talk with people all over the world. I mean, maybe this isn't a great example, but, you know, everyone's sort of enamored with how quickly you can communicate and go, you know, you guys got far better. You can talk to God, right? I mean, it's, it's a similar kind of thing he's doing here. And I mean, this speech and, you know, will come up again in the rest of the letter, right? Some of the uh, tongues, you know, uh, interpretation of tongues, prophecy, teaching, um, and all of that then based, of course, on the knowledge of Jesus. And so um, he's kind of saying, you know, don't don't go out there and listen to the Stoics anymore. Uh, come and listen about Jesus and you'll be far better off. And, and that's what he grounds it in, is this testimony about Christ in verse 6. And at you, you're talking at the very beginning about the season of Advent and how the the two, I think, main thrusts here that connect this to Advent are the way that Christ does come now and then his coming at the end, which is going to be the focus of verses 8 and 9. But I think verse 6 really is is the first part that you mentioned. He did come, right? He came, and it's been preached to you, Corinthians, and that's what's given you all these things. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're 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 dead on here that he's referring back to, uh, you know, them coming to faith, and then even a little bit here to the gifts themselves being a, a confirmation or a testimony about Christ. Basically, you know, the proclamation about Christ is that He is going to enrich you, and He wants to say to the Corinthians, and there's no doubt that He did. Right? You just look around at the Church of Corinth, and you will see confirmation testimony that Christ word is true. Um, and, you know, we we sometimes talk about this, and this is, you know, a thing obviously that you can't do quickly, but some of these particular gifts like tongues and things like that, right, um, seem to have been, at least in part, particular gifts given here early on to serve as testimonies to Christ's word uh, that would, you know, be a, a ready way to easily say, yes, the Lord and his word are true. Talk a little bit more about these spiritual gifts, because that is, I mean, Paul brings that up in verse 7, and, and you've, you've, I think, tried to lay that foundation. Paul has this word grace gifts, for lack of a better way of saying that in English. It seems like the Corinthians want to talk more about spiritual gifts. What What is going on there in that conversation that Paul's having here? Yeah, I don't think this conversation, this is one of those that, you know, we talked about sometimes you have to switch out the specifics. <laughs> but I think here too, you know, uh, I don't know if it's as popular, but for a while, like everybody in the church seemed to be doing spiritual gift inventories, right? Like you were trying yeah. to figure out sort of what you were good. And that's a whole different topic about whether that was a good endeavor or not. Uh, I, I think it was well-intentioned always. But I think at times what it did was sort of cause people to boast in particular gifts, right? Like, well, I'm really good at this. And so then you're going to kind of impose yourself uh, on others and kind of, but it became a way to really say, what am I good at? And the only way that kind of phrase is good is if you go, the only reason I'm really good at this right, is because God has gifted me. He has graced me. He's given me this gift. And I, again, I think, uh, like I said, as one commentator that I came across this kind of distinction between uh, the grace gifts and the spiritual gifts that they liked more of that language. But I think it really is important. And, you know, and I've been thinking again, how do we do a better job of when we see a gift in someone? It's not improper to say you are skilled at administration. You are skilled at this. Or again, even these special gifts in the early church, you have this gift of being able to interpret this tongue. There's, It's not wrong to identify that with the particular person that has it. 
But if it becomes separated from God and his giving, well, then the gift turns into something that becomes a curse rather than a blessing. And that goes back, I think, to what we were saying about the whole purpose of Paul's thanksgiving here, that he starts by giving thanks to God for what he has done among these Corinthian Christians. And I I think that applies to precisely what you're saying about the matter of these gifts that are used. My, My mind, and I know, again, this goes... I think there's a foundation being laid here for, again, what Paul's going to do later. My mind goes to, to 1 Corinthians 12, which is one of those you know, I think classic chapters when it comes to spiritual gifts. And, and sometimes I, I think when it comes to that chapter, we start the conversation too late in the chapter, and we start with the listing of the various gifts that you've been talking about, you know, tongues and, and healing and those kinds of things. I think we need to start the conversation at the beginning of chapter 12, where, where Paul very famously says, you know, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There's a spiritual gift, a spiritual gift of faith in Christ. That is a spiritual gift that every single Christian has. No Christian is lacking in that gift at all. And I think if we start there, then we're more likely to have a conversation about you know the maybe the the particular gifts places where where I've been blessed for service in the church that may be different than places that you've been blessed we're more likely to use them in the the unifying way that God intends them rather than in the divisive way that as you pointed out has sometimes crept into the church today yeah when we go to you know knowledge and speech back up you know again earlier on um, you know, think of Romans uh, ten nine, right? That all of us have been given hearts to believe or to know, right, of salvation and mouths to confess. And so again, even in these particular areas, we can say there are gifts that are given to all Christians. Now, again, the pastor's mouth is used to confess publicly and, you know, someone else in the church, might their mouth might be used to confess in their home or at work or at school. But again, there is this unity of gifts that I think you're right is spoken about uh, even before we get into any of the particular gifts. But overall, we want to know that whatever it is, whether it's something held in common or something a little more unique, that it is only ours by grace. That's right. Yeah, the the grace is certainly evident in this section. It's, it keeps Paul keeps coming back to that fact that this is all a gift. It's all because of that grace that was given there in verse three. And it's it's founded in, and this is where as verses, the end of verse seven into the end of the text, this is really where I, I think if you had to say that's where Advent really comes through strong, it's it's here at the end. Because Paul says this is this is happening as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, and he's the one who's going to sustain you to the end. Uh, take us into to how Paul now shifts gears or maybe makes it certain as to this coming of Christ and how that plays such a huge role here. Well, yeah, I think again, you know, like you say, he looks back, but now he turns and he looks forward and he says, right, uh, so long again, as you understand this notion of God giving you these things, of, of giving you all these things in Jesus through his grace, well, then you can also know that you will be sustained to the end. And isn't this a comfort for us as well? And we'll get this uh, in the last verse as well. But, you know, as a pastor, I'm sure you two at times talk to people who at a certain point in their life are, are devout people, and yet they're worried about Will I be able to hold to the faith if the pain gets worse, if the struggles in my family continue, or will I finally just 
you know, reach a breaking point where my faith is going to falter, right? And here to say, right, these these last two verses are just beautiful verses for that to say, no, right? Remember how you got that faith, right? God gave it to you. And remember that he is going to sustain you all the way till the end, till the revelation of Jesus, right? And this is, again, that appropriate end for us Christians to think on, right? We, again, we get so used to talking about our own death, and and there's place for that. But ultimately, Paul always takes us all the way to the end to say everything gets wrapped up, put back together, placed, you know, perfectly again when Jesus is revealed, right? As he, um, we've been studying here, uh, Mark, uh, you know, 13, well, was in the gospel reading here last week. And in our Bible studies, we've been at the end of the gospel of Matthew. And, you know, just this picture of the Lord returning in the clouds, right? And the, you know, that's, that's what I have pictured in my mind here when we talk about the revealing of Jesus is, you know, he's always there, uh, hidden behind the clouds, so to speak, in heaven, and, and yet he's going to be revealed. And when we think of that, of course, again, at the end or at the middle of this book, we might say, do I want to be there on that day when Jesus returns? Because if I've messed up all this stuff, uh, what what am I to do when he returns? And here's the grace again to say, no, Christ will sustain you. He will make you guiltless on that day so that when the Lord returns, you need not fear, only rejoice. Yeah, I think that's the promises that are here in these last couple of verses are so important. You mentioned the Mark 13 passage that came up toward the end of the church year, and Jesus says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And you know, it, that, it's it's easy to hear those words like, and as you said, you know, can I make it? Can I endure? The question is, can Jesus make you endure? Can he sustain you? And Paul very clearly says, yes, he will here. I mean, you know, and this is where, again, our Lord Jesus Christ our Lord Jesus Christ, and then Jesus Christ, our Lord, in verse 9. It's over and over again. He's the Savior. He's the one who's accomplished this task for which he was appointed, and he is the Lord, you know, the one who is God over all. I mean, oh, what what promises here from this faithful God? I want to talk a little bit about one of the, the words that we haven't gotten to yet, because it, it does become important later in this letter, and it's a, a key word that's again, easy for us to to know so well that since we don't think about it, it's the word fellowship. It's in verse 9. God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Tell us a little bit about that word. Well, yeah, I think it's actually just a great explanation of the Christian faith, right? That what is the Christian faith? Well, ultimately it is that you are called into fellowship the fellowship of Jesus, right? And then, well, what does that mean? What's the fellowship of Jesus? Well, maybe the first part is the most obvious, that it is a, a relationship, a living together with Christ. And of course, that is of utmost importance, but it also in the scriptures becomes this living out together of that life uh, in the body of Christ, and I would say particularly in local congregations. And of course, Paul is going to, you know, talk about this with the Corinthians, to put it like. Uh, whether they're doing that life together well or not, right? Uh, of course, with the Lord's Supper, you know, when some are getting there early and and eating and stuffing themselves, and then those that get there later that are likely poorer, right? They have nothing left to eat, let alone have they even thought about the meal that they're celebrating, right? They're just gorging themselves on food. And, and you know, he just takes all this to say, what, what you know, a terrible living out of the fellowship we have in Christ. And 
again, think of all the ways in which God's people gather together throughout the scriptures. I think sometimes, you know, when we want to encourage people to get back to church, we tend to go to particular verses, right? We go to Hebrews, right? Uh, don't, uh, you know, forsake the gathering together. And more and more, I'm, I'm just talking, I mean, yes, that verse is great and should be referenced, but God's people just always gather. And we might a- answer the question here, well, why do they always gather? Because they are gathered into the fellowship of Jesus, right? I mean, it's just natural that if you've been made one with others through Christ, you are going to want to literally be with them. Uh, And I think, you know, that's very important here with this idea of fellowship. And of course, this word, I mean, is a word that gets used directly for the Lord's Supper, uh, which is, you know, perhaps the most, uh, you know, powerful manifestation of that unity. Even today, just imagine, right? Coming up to the altar, standing with other people, receiving the body and blood of Jesus, even the rest of the saints in your church, singing the the distribution hymns as you're doing it, right? That's, that's the fellowship of Jesus, uh, and we should rejoice in it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, notice it is the the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, that the fellowship, this communion, participation, the word gets translated a number of ways. It's it's with Jesus first and foremost. And I mean, so it is it is a fellowship that I have with Christ. But when I have fellowship with Christ, then I, I have this fellowship with everyone else. You know, the, the picture that you gave there of, of going to receive the Lord's Supper. I mean, imagine if it was just you. And of course, there are cases for for health reasons and traveling difficulties that 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 is the way that we receive the Lord's Supper is individually, and we should not doubt that the whole fellowship of the saints is with us at that moment. But but imagine under under normal Sunday morning circumstances, if it's just you, I mean, you know that something's missing. <laughs> you you it, it's and it's all the other people who are in fellowship with with Christ, and there's always this longing to be together with Christ and with all those who are in fellowship with Christ. And I mean, and that's the church. And that's a that's a beautiful reality. Pastor Hoppe, we've got about a minute left here. Lots of great stuff in this text. Help us to wrap things up and, and from this text point us to our Savior Jesus Christ, the coming one of Advent. Yeah. So I think let's start with just those three words, God is faithful, right? Uh, that's, that is really, you know, the overall, overall comfort in Advent, that we know that just as God has come, so also he will come in his word and sacrament, right? Oh, yes, by word and promise clear, as one of our hymns says, right? Uh, and yet, then finally, that last and great promise that the Lord will return and that he will bring all things to completion, that he will save his people, that he will judge his enemies, that he'll deliver to us a new heaven and a new earth. That is what we are assured of. And as we gather in the Advent season, that's a big part of why we gather, is to be reminded of that. Because Advent is a season of waiting. And often when we're waiting, we are worried or we do wonder if our faith is going to survive it. And again, rather than saying your faith, your faith, your faith, we say God is faithful. Uh, I say to people often, right, God has got you in his hands. You don't have to worry about holding on. You know, I talk to people near death that might be a little worried about that whole process. I said, God's got you. He's not letting go. He's faithful. So you don't have to worry about whether you'll make it because he's the one that will make you make it. And what a great comfort that is. 
Pastor Philip Hoppe is pastor at Peace Lutheran Church in Finlayson, Minnesota, and St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Bruno, Minnesota, helping us today with 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 to 9. Pastor Hoppe, thanks for being our guest today. So glad to do it. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions on this text from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 or any other of the epistle readings appointed for the season of Advent, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.